1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Jana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Victor Stater, the Jane Lucas Taquaman professor in the Department of History at Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, to talk about his new book, Hoax, The Papist Plot That Never Was, out this year, 2022, with the Yale University Press. Hello, Victor, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, it's
0: a pleasure to be here.
1: Thank you so much for joining me. So how are you this morning? How's, how are things in Louisiana?
0: Um, <clears throat> well, today actually is a special day because it is the day that the first cold front has dragged its ass through Baton Rouge. So yeah. um, <clears throat> we're all quite happy.
1: What, is, uh, what does a cold front look like in Baton Rouge, Louisiana?
0: The first one usually looks um, uh, pitifully weak. The, the low temperature today is, I think, sixty. Four. So, <clears throat> uh, but it means that we won't be in the nineties today, and
1: yeah, that sounds.
0: <laughs> the humidity is below ninety percent, so everybody's delighted.
1: <laughs> yeah, that sounds quite nice. I um, nineties and uh, in September sounds, um, I, it sounds probably pretty southern actually. Uh, <laughs> there we are. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I'm talking to you from a cold and rainy Amsterdam, as expected. Um, all right. So, I'm looking through, you know, your your career here and your your publications, and you're the author of Duke Hamilton is Dead: Aristocratic Life and Death in Stuart Britain and, and Noble Government: The Stuart Lord, Lieutenancy Tenancy, and the Transformation of English Politics, and various other articles and essays. that are basically on politics. Um, the history of politics, government, the elite, and power in early modern England. Um, yeah, it's a fair characterization of your of your interests. Yeah, very much.
0: In in some ways, um, this book is a continuation of of uh, themes that that I talk about going as far back as my dissertation, which I uh, finished in 1988. So. I'm a, I'm a pony, I guess. <laughs>
1: um, I think we call that a dedicated and focused scholar. Think, <laughs> okay. so that's not oh. the term we like. Um, but I mean, in some ways this is also a very different, this is a different book than you've done before. Um, and it's very much, it's a political story, um, but there's a lot of pop culture and it's used broadly. Um, and, and you can, there's a lot of, um there's a popular. I get, I get a lot of the zeitgeist in this book. Um, it also is just, man, it's a good story. It's it's a really good and it's one that I hadn't heard. Were you familiar with this before you ran before you started working on this book?
0: Oh yes, um, the the popish plot, as it's it's known to those of us in the know, um, is um, something that that pretty much everyone who works in the field knows a good deal about it, it I decided to write the book though because um, it, it even though people know about it professional historians have a tendency to sort of assume that that everybody is uh, familiar with it and when they write their books they sort of uh, blast through it without taking much time and what I wanted to do was, was uh, explore it in much greater detail. And I also feel like it had a more significant long-term impact than it has been given credit for. Um, and uh, the other thing is that that uh, it's a book that's in, in a way in homage to the historian who uh, last wrote about the plot, John Kenyon, um, uh, back in the early 1970s, uh, a magnificent book, um, uh, but no one's published on it um, directly since. Uh, and I, that was the book that drew me into the study of the uh, English Restoration
1: Oh, fascinating. Okay, so this also has a lot of personal resonance for yeah, you. Yeah, it it's does. A story
0: mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: you've been sitting with for a while. So, um, when you decided to take a look at this, you obviously there's a good deal of secondary literature you look at. What um, what's your primary and contemporary source base?
0: Well, the. Probably the most important are the published records of the trials, Um, that and um, parliamentary records, the journals of both the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Um, But we do have these wonderful uh, collections of uh, what are called state trials um, that give verbatim testimony from um, the law courts. Uh, and were collected together and, and published in the early 19th century. And there, oh, I don't, there must be dozens of volumes of these um, collected together, and they're really a wonderful source because you can really get a feel for what was actually happening in the walls of the courthouse.
1: Yeah, a lot of and description. I mean, these and these first person voices, right? You hear. What people are saying, and no, no, um, I mean, you know, court reporters are what they are, but like the, but very clearly, um, you're getting fairly unfiltered information here.
0: Right, and and um, it, it's we know pretty much um, that these are are fairly accurate. We don't, we can't be a hundred percent sure that everything that that gets written down was what was said, but we. We know that that there were multiple people taking notes. Uh, we know that the judges um frequently reviewed the text before it was published um, so we can uh, have fairly high confidence that these uh, records are are pretty accurate
1: mm-hmm. uh, um i'm I'm interested as well in kind of. So, the, the, I mean, this is one of the things that English history is famous for. These great, like, you have these really good sources, right? You have these excellent court records. Um, and people who are interested in doing more kind of uh, gender stuff have the old Bailey as well. Like, there's really good records. But I, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what, what goes into a trial? Who's there? How famous is this? Like, what, what's happening around this courtroom?
0: Um, most of the important cases were tried in the um, the Old Bailey, which is the central criminal court. It's still um, the Old Bailey, um, different building now, but um, it, it was a public trial. Uh, one of the things which is very interesting and which I didn't know before I, I did the research for this is that is the configuration of the Old Bailey is fascinating. The The courtroom was on the ground floor of the building, which it had originally burned down in the in the Great Fire of 1666. And so it was rebuilt. And it was pretty new when these trials took place. The courtroom on the ground floor was open to the air. So it was there were three sides that had walls and then the long side facing the street was actually open. Yeah. And, and there was a courtyard there, <coughs> so spectators could, could um, just pile into that open space to witness the trial. So you could have hundreds of people there watching uh, the proceedings. Within the court itself, there was a, a raised um, dais where the judges sat. There was a box where the jury sat. Um, And then um, a place, a box for the defendant as well. Um, So it was all open and and public um, and very difficult at times to control because the crowd could get a little overexcited and um, they had to have uh, officers of the court there with uh, rods to sort of maintain some semblance of order when, when things got hectic. Um, but the ideal was that, that this was to be a public trial and, and ordinary people had the right to witness them
1: which is fascinating, right? So when we talk about the impact of this trial, it's not just on a small number of people. It's not just going to be, this isn't just something that affects the elites or the, or, you know, like the machinations of government. This is a very public, massive spectacle.
0: That's right. Um, that
1: absolutely. Yeah.
0: yeah, This, this, these cases were followed, um, religiously by, um, Hundreds of thousands of people, uh, and London basically ground to a halt while these trials went on, um, and there was a, a whole industry um, revolving around um, uh, the publication of of the uh, text of the testimony, of um, uh, prints and and broadsides depicting. The famous figures in the trials, some of the informers, um, and the like. It was big business, um, and uh, the London tradesmen um, really were very quick to cash in on on er- everything surrounding the plot. I mean, there's there's a whole range of of uh, commercial kitsch that comes out of it, uh, playing cards. Stove tiles, um, just an, an amazing array of publications, um, medals, uh, just you name it. And somebody in London was manufacturing it and selling it. There were even uh, daggers, uh, souvenir daggers being sold. Um, it, was, it was quite the opportunity for, for shrewd uh, businessmen.
1: That is, uh, yeah, that, that is, that's really, if that makes sense. I don't know why am I even a little bit shocked that there are people selling souvenir tigers. Um, so this is, I mean, so we have this, so you're talking about this, this plot, this, um, this really important political affair, but then has really important ramifications. And I think it's kind of, um, it reflects in the kind of book you've written a little. And um, one more thing before we get into the specifics of the the case, Uh, this is a really readable book. So it's smart. It's an excellent, well-researched, well-written, solidly defended historical argument but it's also just good fun. It's really it's well written. It's narrative driven. It's it has the the opportunity, or I think it it could be a very like a popular this this could appeal to a popular audience. Was that intentional?
0: Yeah, um, I wanted to write a book that that people would like to read, and um, the the last book that I did was similar in in that aim. Um, uh, I just I feel like part of my obligation as a historian is to write things for a broader audience. And, uh, I don't, I don't think that we should, we academic historians should cede the field entirely to, um, the, uh, the popularizers, um, who, I have nothing against, but uh, I think sometimes we get, on, on the academic side, uh, a little too stuffy and and um, boring.
1: And we're encouraged to speak only to each other, right? We're encouraged to write these books. We write that for other historians who do exactly what we do. Yeah, and I'm I mean, the same, nothing against a journalist, but it's really nice to read a history book that's written by a professional historian that's... A good story?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it was f- certainly fun to do. I, it, You know, it, it was it, every every day when I'd go into the archive or, or uh, later when, you know, when we were locked out of our archives, when I logged on to the Hathi Trust, uh, which was a godsend for, for anybody who was um, trying to do real history during the pandemic. Uh, it, there was just every day there was another bunch of, Great stories and uh, remarkable chicanery and uh, you name it. It was, it was a lot of fun.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of chicanery. There's some remarkable chicanery here. Yeah, I would, I would say there's also some skullduggery and perhaps some shenanigans.
0: Right. Yeah. All of those, all of those. Uh, one of the, th- the things which I think is a pretty apparent, um, uh, if you, when you read the book uh, is that uh, in many ways politicians and politics are are were as, as egregious then as they are now uh, if not more so um, uh, then actually the stakes were higher uh, people ended up being unjustly executed so but politicians are are uh, well they don't come off super well in this story
1: no no they do not well let's like uh, let's step back let's take a minute and if you would please tell our listeners what is the Popish, the papish plot
0: okay well the Popish plot was um, an invention um, uh, dreamed up by uh, initially two um, informers one of whom was half mad um, a, a paranoid uh, minister of the Church of England. The other, the more important of whom, was um, a, uh, a serial pederast, um, liar, perjurer. Um, he had been uh, basically chased out of every um, living and uh, Place of employment he'd ever been in for misbehavior. These two uh, came up with a story uh, in which they claimed that there was a Roman Catholic conspiracy to assassinate King Charles II. the The goal there was to put to put Charles's. Brother and heir apparent, James, Duke of York, onto the English throne because James was a Catholic convert, and the story had resonance with with many people because of the long-standing um, fear and hatred that that Catholicism inspired in England. There's you know, the, the the failed attempt to blow up Parliament. Um, and the royal family in 1605 is is one of the chapters in that long story. Uh, the, the failed attempt to invade England by the Spanish and the Spanish Armada. Um, there are any number of reasons why a perfectly rational English person in 1678 would believe that there was such a conspiracy. So, when um, when these two informers brought the news of this alleged plot uh, to the authorities, there was a willingness to believe that there could be something there. And so it triggered an investigation. The investigation reveals something which many people were uh, very shocked by, which was that there is, or there was at the time, a, a very broad and um, very well-disguised Catholic underground in England and in London in particular. It was illegal to practice Catholicism, and and there were any number of, of laws on the books that were intensely persecutory. So Catholics developed over the course of a century all sorts of... Um, uh, dodges and um, strategies which kept them out of sight. And nobody had for years really bothered to um, to try to dig out the Catholic underground. And so they started doing it and they discovered, my God, there there's a Benedictine monastery in the middle of London. Uh, there are uh, Jesuits all over the place. So This reinforces the people's fear of Catholics. And then to top it off, the magistrate, who was um, originally the man who took the information from our two informers, a man named Titus Oates and uh, Israel Tongue, this magistrate uh, was murdered, or everyone assumed he was murdered. Edmund Godfrey was the magistrate. He took the depositions of our two um, antiheroes uh, and then disappeared. His corpse was found a week later. The immediate assumption was, oh, no, the Catholics have murdered Magistrate Godfrey. Well, the... They found the body with a sword stuck in it with um, ligature marks around his neck, so he did not die a natural death. In fact, um, the historian Alan Marshall has written a book in which he investigates the death of uh, Godfrey very, very closely. And his conclusion, which I think is quite right and very plausible to me, is that Godfrey, who was known to be something of a depressive, probably hanged himself. And his two brothers, who um, stood to lose their inheritance— because Godfrey was single, his brothers were his heirs and the property of a suicide is forfeit to the crown. The likelihood is that the two brothers discovered their dead um, brother and thought, oh no, we're gonna lose the whole the entirety of his estate so let's make it look like a murder. they, concealed the body for a while. They then stuck a sword into it um, and dumped it on the outskirts of London. When it was discovered, all hell broke loose because everyone assumed that, you know, this is more proof of this giant plot. And at that very moment, a new session of Parliament opened. And in that Parliament were a number of highly ambitious and unscrupulous politicians who intended to use this so-called plot as a stick to beat their political enemies in the government with. And so you get this uncontrollable crisis that that emerges out of these almost random acts that expands um, to effectively take over the political world for the next year or so, uh, and which has the long-term impact of of helping to create a two-party political system in England, which, of course, over the long term, has incalculable consequences.
1: Continues to be quite important, indeed. So we've got this this whole it, it, it's a mishmash, right? Murders, secret Catholics, possible suicide, kind of early modern insurance fraud, a possible attempted regicide, dirty politicians, like this whole shebang. And you know, if you were writing this as fiction, I might. Question your ethics. I might like say, well, that's a little much there, right? Like, okay, you've gone too far here, but yet this this is all truth, and and people believe there's a conspiracy theory of epic proportion, and people believe it, right? People believe this. Contemporaries they do. believe this. They
0: do, and uh, it results in in the arrest and and uh, prosecution of of. Uh, Dozens of completely innocent Catholics. Um, probably, I think it's about two dozen who end up being executed. Um, more die in jail before their opportunity to uh, be tried. These trials were were um, conducted in in the shadow of of a sort of a deep. Hatred of Catholics, uh, and so getting a fair trial was not really on uh, on the on the program. I mean, you people were simply they assumed guilt before a word was spoken, um, and and it was very difficult for the defendants in these cases to uh, to gain acquittal um, because of the assumption by both the, the judges and the juries involved that that they were um, clearly guilty because they were Catholic.
1: Right. That they're guilty of something, whether it's flat or not. The defen- okay.
0: Yeah. The defendants, this was one of the things which really struck me in reading through the, the trial transcripts. The, the The defendants were constantly being required to prove a negative. So there was no, written evidence to demonstrate the existence of this plot plot at all. There were no letters. There are no diaries. There's nothing actually concrete. And the defendants would say, well, show us the evidence. Where where did anybody write a letter? Is there, is there a, an account book? Any actual evidence? And the response of the court was invariably, well, you destroyed it, obviously. Why would you keep those things if if?" you were plotting the king's death. Well, how do you answer that? Right. So yeah. uh, it was it was uh, a series of uh, shockingly unjust trials.
1: And so we've got, I mean, clearly we're looking at a political system that has not worked out all of its kinks, right? This is uh, we've, the trial system in England in the early modern period is not perfect.
0: Right, right. Um, yeah. in cases that weren't as as charged politically and religiously, uh, it was possible to get a fair trial in an English court. Um, but in in this particular situation, these defendants uh, were were um, deeply disadvantaged from the from this very start.
1: And that has a lot to do, I mean, we can write a lot of that off to just um, anti-Catholic sentiment, but also a real paranoia, a real concern about the still 100 years later that England might become Catholic again. Yeah, that's right. right.
0: And if you think about the contemporary situation in the late 1670s, this was a moment in which um, Louis XIV's France was pursuing an aggressively expansionist policy um, Mm -hmm. and uh, persecuting French Protestants. So uh, refugees were coming from France with horror stories about um, having their property destroyed and their homes invaded and on and on. And so in that context, (laughs) excuse me, in that context, it just deepens the fear
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in in England we have, or in England Europe, we have a situation where the monarchy, like the the families, the ruling families, are all deeply entwined, and. Um, places, you know, that it hasn't been that long since the Catholic Protestant shape happened. And so there's still a lot of fighting there. But then there's also just how much of this also reflects a political instability in this period, like a concern about the English crown?
0: Yeah, well, there's, that's definitely a feature, because many of these political divisions um, can be traced back to the period of the Civil War. And when when skepticism begins to grow about the testimony of the various informers, as their stories get increasingly elaborate and and hard to believe, that skepticism essentially divides along the same lines uh, that the English people were divided upon during the Civil Wars. So uh, those who are prone to uh, a royalist outlook, people who had, mm-hmm. whose families had supported Charles I in the Civil Wars and who continue to support uh, the royal family, <clears throat> tend to be the skeptics. Mm-hmm. Whereas those who uh, had stood on the other side tend to, be, to continue to be believers, some sincerely, um, but there are a fair number, particularly among the leaders of the opposition cynically, um, who who almost certainly realize that the plot is a fiction, but it's a useful fiction.
1: Mm-hmm. So this is another question. I had you open this book by talking about some modern conspiracy theories, right, which... It feels right now like we're in this heyday of conspiracy theories. But as an historian, I know that that's, that's not the case. It's no worse now than it's ever been. Um, but one of the... Like, and so there's some, just some ideas about like what we can learn about how this works. But one thing that I'm struck by constantly with modern conspiracy theories on this as well is that question of... Who's a true believer? How many people really believe that there's a, a plot to overthrow the government and replace replace the kill the king and replace him with the Catholic? And how many people are just along for the ride and they're using this because they know it's effective? Do you have any idea um, about that? Well,
0: my theory is, is that uh, initially with these, this concatenation of, of coincidence, the death of, of um, the magistrate and the revelations about the Catholic um, infrastructure of London, it was widely believed. I mean, there were some people who, from the start, knew for sure that this was a fiction, notably the king and his brother. Um, but it was very broadly believed that, um, in, for about the first three months or so. After about three months, as, as the investigation gets progressively politicized by the opposition in Parliament, then you begin to see, um, the growth of skepticism more broadly. And by, by, by the time six months had passed, the, True believers were um, probably in a minority, um, but they were they were a, a loud and um, influential minority, uh, and so they could they could push forward. For example, uh, the trials of, of various Catholics, and and uh, they were quite sophisticated at the, at spreading um, their their version of the plot in print um, through public demonstrations. There were all sorts of of uh, tricks in their bag that they used to impress on on the broader population the the reality so called of this of this plot.
1: And then that's really useful for people who know. For and there are a number of people who can use this the sentiment to their own, for their
0: own ends. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why it, it it proves to be um, such an important political catalyst because uh, it, it pushes these, um, the the skeptics and the true believers um, into what turns into the first two ideologically driven political parties, um, the, the Whigs and the Tories, Whigs being the true believers, Tories being the skeptics. Um, now, I, I, I would hazard to say that two parties would have formed eventually anyway at some point, but it seems to me that, that the reaction to the plot is sort of what gets the ball rolling.
1: Okay. Yeah, so very long stand like long political responses or you know, ends to this. So what happens to these original two guys, your half mad con uh, men?
0: Well, Israel tongue is progressively sort of moved off the scene because he was half mad and and could not be reliably expected to to learn his story Um, so he sort of fades out of the picture ultimately he dies um, uh, of what amounts to just old age Uh, now Titus Oates the other major um, informer uh, has a much um, more interesting uh, story He parlays this this tale into international fame. There are German engravings, portrait engravings of him, for example. There are Dutch portrait engravings of him. Um, International fame, a pension from the government, lodgings in the King's palace, uh, and general adulation. Despite the fact that he was a truly horrible person, nobody liked him. Uh, wherever he went, he made enemies. Um, but his story was was so gripping that none of that seemed to matter. Ultimately uh, the plot is is um, largely revealed to be a sham. Um, but this doesn't really happen in a decisive way until uh, Charles II dies in 1685 and is replaced, uh-oh, for Titus Oates by James, who had known all along that that Oates was a fraud. So, following Charles's death in James's reign, Oates was um, charged with perjury. Um, he was also charged with libeling um, the king or well as Duke of York. Uh, he He got a massive fine for that. Um, he was pilloried several times and and the sentence required him to be pilloried annually for the rest of his life. Uh, and he was jailed. But then, those of you who know your English history, uh, James II ends up being uh, deposed, at which point Titus Oates's narrative becomes very useful once again. And so he's released from prison. He's once again given a pension. Uh, he's now a hero again, um, but he was never content with... with what he had. And so he continued to make, uh, enemies wherever he went, but to the end of his life, he, he was, um, a loathsome figure. I mean, he, he had, uh, first been raised as a as a dissenter, a Baptist during the Civil Wars. He had then become an Anglican minister. He had then become a Catholic. By the end of his life, he had gone back to the Baptist faith, um, but he used uh, his religion for his own private interests. So In in his final chapter as a Baptist, he effectively took over a Baptist chapel in London and milked it for cash. Um, He married a woman, despite the fact that that he was not in that way inclined at all, um, and stole all her money. Uh, So he's just a terrible person. And, and if, if there is a hell, he's, he's was first in line um, when he finally died in, in 1702, I think it was. And there's a, there's, there are others, there's a whole cast of, of ne'er-do-wells and fraudsters and, and perjurers who emerge from the woodwork to try to get their own piece of um you know, fame and fortune. Uh, there's absolutely no shortage of of truly reprehensible people uh, who who emerge from this this uh, this story.
1: Sure, yeah, and I, I feel like that's another kind of uh, parallel we can see with our current political situation. There is no end to the to the number of people who are willing to do truly terrible things.
0: Yep, you know, human nature doesn't change. The times change, but and circumstances change, but human nature is always the same. It seems to me.
1: It seems there are definitely always rotters. That is for sure. Um, you know, just rarely do you have a situation that's such a perfect storm. For them to really flourish, and this just this is a situation where it feels like many people's worst impulses were were really yeah
0: they come to the surface and are indulged by by the times. It's it's you're very correct about that.
1: Yeah, and come up, it seems to be in short supply in this situation right. as well.
0: Right, it's that's another thing. Their justice is not served very well uh, in in this story. It's uh, sad, but but that was the reality.
1: You know, um, it was a very politics is a high stakes game. It's and that is just the situation, right? Yeah, it
0: was a a matter of life and death in many cases.
1: Yeah, in in this way that I think is probably hard for uh, modern people to wrap their brain around. Um, so I've taken up quite a bit of your time, just a couple more things. So first of all, I just want to note um, for our listeners, you definitely want to read this book and their, um, the scholarly apparatus, the notes, but also the further reading section, there's a really nice, if you read this, this book and you're fascinated by it, you will find your way in this book to other really readable books about the period Which it seems like you not only wanted to make sure your readers could enjoy this story, but if they wanted to, could really take a dive into the history.
0: Yeah, uh, that's what I intended to do with that section on further reading. I I I didn't want to make it a, um, a formal bibliography. Um, if you if you want to know the sources, they're in the notes. Um, but but that the further reading was meant as a, as a way into the Restoration period, which I think is endlessly fascinating, and and other people might find it so too.
1: I really think, um, I think this book will find a good home with a lot of our listeners. And I think that our listeners will then be able to indulge their interests further. So I think you've provided a really nice entry into this period. And it's really nice. Well done. Um, yeah, thanks a lot. And it's the kind of book that I, I would love to see more of. I know, um, and people love history, not everyone. There are some people who just apparently don't like humans. But, I mean, people love history, but they don't know necessarily how to read good history.
0: Uh, yeah, and it's sometimes not real easy to figure out where where you're going to find it. I mean, um, so.
1: Reading a readable, a delightful narrative written well by a reputable and rigorous historian is a rarity, and you have made one. So well done. Thank you. Um, yeah, so what's next? What are you working on now in, in your historian, booklined historian's uh, uh, office? Uh, uh,
0: well, you know, I'm not sure yet. I mean, there are various ideas floating around my head, but I haven't settled on, on anything. It will be probably something um, uh, in the late 17th century. Um, era, and there are, I'm interested in all sorts of things, but uh, I haven't decided just yet.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. That's exciting, then, just doing a lot of reading, poking around, seeing what you can find.
0: Something will leap out at me, um, and like this last book that I wrote, uh, uh, which was centered on a, an infamous duel that took place in the early 18th century, that story started out as me doing research into the union between England and Scotland. And I ran across this one figure who was, who was a central um, person in that, in that story. And it turns out he dies in a duel. And I decided that that was way more interesting than the treaty of union um, as important as it is. Um, And so that's how that book got started. I'm hoping something like that will will leap out at me for the next story.
1: Well, um, I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to read everything you write. So please keep going. All right. Uh, listeners, I have this has been a talk with Victor Stater about hoax the papers plot that never was out this year 2022 with yale university press uh they'll there's a link to purchase it on our website or find it wherever you like books and victor thank you very much once again have a lovely night
0: thank you i appreciate uh, the opportunity